Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with the Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex-Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. On this week's episode of The Resilient Surgeon, we are talking with Dr. Haytham Kafrani, and the topic is second victim syndrome, a term that I suspect many of you may not even be familiar with. Second victim syndrome refers to the often dramatic psychological impact of an adverse event or complication on the physician. In our world of cardiothoracic surgery, this usually means a major adverse event, typically operative, and one that we often feel directly responsible for. And in our culture, we typically deal with these psychological traumas by implementing the algorithm for dealing with problems or setbacks recommended by the retired Navy SEAL Jocko Willink. Get up, dust off, reload, and re-engage. An algorithm that works great in so many of our daily challenges and setbacks but one that is at odds with the known best practices for dealing constructively with significant psychological trauma, such as the aftermath of a major adverse event. Our guest today who will help shed light on this critical topic for our resilience is Dr. Haytham Kafrani, who is an Associate Professor of Trauma and Critical Care at the Massachusetts General Hospital, and he is a Chief of Patient Safety Officer and Medical Director for the Joint Commission. Haytham is an international expert on the second victim syndrome for two reasons. He has direct personal experience of the psychological impact of major adverse events. And he and his colleagues have also performed two of the seminal studies on second victim syndrome and surgeons. The first that shows just how emotionally devastating a major adverse event can be for surgeons. And the second that shows how important it is to have a well thought out program of peer support for our colleagues after a major adverse event, so we can all go on to a more rapid and constructive recovery. So as always, sit back, open your mind, and reflect on both your own experience with major adverse events and how you can be a part of the effort to make our specialty more human. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi. I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world, and it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program, and the residents love the high-quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app, so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org slash ebook. I'm here today with Dr. Haytham Kafrani, a professor at Mass General Hospital of Surgery and Trauma Surgery, and the topic is the second victim syndrome. Welcome to the Resilient Surgeon Podcast, Haytham. It's a real pleasure and an honor to have you as our guest today. Absolutely. The pleasure is all mine, and thank you, Michael, for having, having me. So I think in what I really want to hear today is, I mean, I heard your talk at the American College of Surgeons uh, recently on the second victim syndrome. Uh, it was a series of talks which were outstanding, uh, but you really went through in your talk sort of the evolution of how you sort of bumped up against second victim syndrome 
And then you realize that this was actually playing some role in your existence even. And then you went on to really make major, in my opinion, contributions uh, to our surgical colleagues with your work in the, in, the, in the world of acute stress after adverse events, and then with your work in creating a peer support program at Mass General. But before we get rolling on the story and how you evolved in a way into this, maybe we could get a couple of uh, definitions out of the way. So for people who are not even familiar with the term second victim, uh, and what we mean by adverse events, maybe you could just talk about those two things and, and give us kind of a feel for what those mean. Yeah, no, absolutely happy to start with these definitions. Let's start with adverse events. An adverse event is, is defined as uh, some event to the patient that is not a favorable event that was not expected evolution of their disease or an expected complication of their disease per se. It wasn't part of the plan. So it happens accidentally. Now it could be an error, it could be not an error. There's a difference between an error. An error could cause an adverse event. An error may not cause an adverse event. So it's something that reaches the patient that was not supposed to be part of their disease evolution or their plan of care. An intraoperative adverse event is one of those uh, black boxes, if you want, in the surgical world. Uh, a lot of us are very familiar with how patients do after surgery. Did they get an infection? Did they not get an infection? Did their anastomosis leak? Did their bypass stay open? We're all familiar with that. But an intraoperative adverse event remained one of those black boxes. We talk about it every now and then in M&M, but we, we don't measure as much. So it, it's a particular, if you want, um, subset events. Now, what is the second victim phenomenon? How does it relate to an adverse event or an intraoperative adverse event? So the second victim as a terminology is actually uh, something that was pointed out by a good friend of mine, Albert Wu from Hopkins, uh, who in the year 2000 in the uh, British Medical Journal pointed out this kind of state of mind that physicians in general, including surgeons, um, commonly fall into when their patient has a major adverse event, or particularly when they when there's an error that they committed that cause, causes that adverse event. It is characterized by a mixed emotions of guilt, shame, embarrassment, and also with occasionally repetitive thoughts going through the process over and over again in their heads. It uh, avoidance of similar care in the future, how they behave around that patient. They might be overly attentive or they might avoid the care of that specific patient because it's just too painful for them to witness the patient. Uh -huh. They promise to help now lingering and not doing well. And, uh, and, and since then it's been studied reasonably well um, in literature in terms of what, what is that state. And there's even studies about coming from people much smarter than I am in psychology and psychiatry. who talk about the six phases, if you want, of evolution of the state of mind of providers. So it could be also nurses, by the way, or any kind of healthcare provider. The six stages we go through uh, once an adverse event or an intraoperative adverse event happens. Okay. And, you know, I mean, if we just step back for a moment and think about what you said, boy, could I relate to the dread I would feel having to go visit a patient or a family where there was a significant intraoperative event. I mean, it just, it, it was just very difficult. And I'm going to highlight those tendencies to either avoid or over over care for that can occur in a circumstance like that. It just shows you the power of these emotional responses to significantly influence us. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I actually think this is the tip of the pyramid, Michael. Yeah. I think the, the other really eight, ninth of the pyramid, if you want, is how many surgeons change their, 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 their practices Right. based on these events that go unnoticed or the, the causality is not established. You know, they go through in the first two years out of training through a major 
intraoperative complications and they start avoiding these complex cases oh, after okay. that and they tailor or they send it to other specialists like cardiothoracic surgeon to a cardiologist why don't you do four stents instead of me doing the cabbage so this is the stuff that is not measured that actually worries me as much if not more yeah the pernicious slow pernicious nature of the of the impact yeah yeah well <clears throat> could you I'd love to hear you, you presented so beautifully at the ACS, your, your journey into this world of the second victim. So I'd love to hear how that unfolded for you, how you came across the world of the second victim. And I'd also love your thoughts on sort of what is a, a bit of a controversy in some corners and the use of the term second victim and, and to see what you think about that from a surgical perspective. But before you launch down that road, I, I'd just also like to make this little note there's a very famous Navy SEAL named Jocko Willink, and he's all over the internet and Instagram. And he was a commander and in charge of SEAL training in the West Coast and you know multiple tours in Iraq. And there's a very popular video of his, it's called Problem Good. And basically his attitude is, you know, when you've got a problem, you, you get up, you dust off, reload and engage, re-engage, right? So that's the protocol. And I think for surgeons, there's a great appeal in that sort of mindset, and that's how we're taught to be. Uh, but in the world of psychological trauma, which I equate second victim to, I think that's a recipe for problems. And so I'm throwing all that at you, your journey, the, the <laughs> typical surgical mindset around this, and, and then we can have at it here. All right. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot to unpack here. Let me start with a quick story, and then I tell you my journey into how, how I stumbled literally back into the topic, which brought back the story to my mind. Great. The story was, a, it was in my first couple of years out of training, a young trauma surgeon in Boston, full of um, ambition, full of confidence, mm -hmm. full of ego, let's put it out there. And I love trauma and I still love trauma. But on it was towards the end of the year, around this time of the year, um, you know, towards the end of, of the year. And I received a middle-aged man who was involved in a factory incident. Uh, the bottom line is he was accidentally pinned against the wall with the forklift. And then as they pulled it back, he fell down on the forklift and then impaled him. So it was a major trauma, star trauma. He arrived to the trauma bay in severe hemorrhagic shock, uh, barely any pressure, a thready pulse. Um, and then we immediately sprang to action. I took him straight to the operating room. And then for the next two, three days, I continued operating on, on him over and over again. I packed his pelvis to stop the bleeding. I embolized both his internal iliacs. I reconstructed his femoral artery um, blood supply as he had lost. He had injured his femoral, femoral artery and, uh, and I had ligated his profunda as well when I put that PTFE graft. I diverted his colon because he had a colonic injury. So I created a stoma, diverted his urine with a foley and a suprapubic catheter. And, uh, and then we, the orthopedics, uh, team fixed his pelvis. Now on the third day of operating, and I, I did every single surgery of his because as a trauma surgeon, this is my calling. This is why I trained for so many years. That's the cases I want to do. And, uh, and I was meeting with his family throughout. He had uh, a mother and a 14 and a 16 year old kids around that age, teenage kids. And literally every time I met with them after every surgery, I would repeat the same story. I say, he's very critical. He is very ill. I am not sure he's gonna make it, but we're trying our best. And then on the, around the, like the third day of operating continuously, sometimes more than once a day, he actually, I mean, I've done all the definitive surgery and now it was just the wound that, that I had to wash out and, and pack. We walk him up under sedation in the ICU and with the breathing tube in, he woke up. He was, you know, 
shockingly mentally intact despite everything he went to he gave us the thumbs up that he's mm-hmm. doing today mm-hmm. so i went and sat with his mother and his kids and i said listen i think he's gonna make it he's off base muscle he's not requiring any blood now it's a little bit of getting his wound to heal and eventually we can everything you know can be reversed i think we got it we got this we saved him we high-fived his mother was so appreciative she went and made uh, it was around christmas time as i said and she made all these amazing christmas cookies and brought them to me yeah and she brought them to me in, in this very beautiful box and, you know i know this is a podcast so you can see but i have a picture of it because what happened is after i shared some of the cookies with the care team and the icu team i took the box home with some cookies for my kids and my daughter who was young at that which was i think she was two or maybe four years old at that point she loved the box it was very nicely decorated and she decided to keep it in her room she keeps her little letters and with her friends notes her bracelets things like that so it, it was in her room for years facing me but what happened that night when i went home finally i could rest my head on the pillow knowing like hey look at my ego now this is the trauma surgeon saving a patient I was feeling really good about myself, really. But what happened that night is I got a phone call from one of my partners who was in the hospital covering that night. And again, I can never forget his sentence. I will never forget it because Uh he said, dude, your guy is going down the tubes. (laughs) And that sentence, I I mean, those words were ringing my ears forever because what happened is I, I... put my clothes on, I went straight to the hospital. And by, you know, I arrived early morning hours, I looked at the patient. And the patient was on triple or quadruple vasopressors, really, really sick, and about to die. And there's nothing else we can do. What had happened is, he had developed a severe necrotizing skin and soft tissue infection in his wound, the big wound he has in his perineum. And when you think about it, it made all the clinical sense in the world, right? He had a huge inoculum of bacteria from the colon and rectal injury. I embolized his both internal iliacs, the major blood supply to the pelvis. I ligated his one of his profonda arteries, which also supplies some of the pelvis. And he was sick on vasopressors. It was the recipe for anacrotizing skin and soft tissue infections. Long story short, we withdrew care on the patient. It was around, it was Christmas morning, actually. I, I hate to give details too much, but it was Christmas morning. No, I think the details are worth hearing. Yeah, yeah. I uh, And we withdrew care on him and I sat with his kids and his mom and I said, I'm sorry, we tried our best. This is what happened. They were very sad. They cried, but then, you know, we hugged and we withdrew care and the patient passed away. Now, why do I tell the story? It's not like a trauma surgeon does not see death on a daily or weekly basis. I do. And I've lost hundreds of patients over the years. I say this story because something was different about this case and I didn't dare share it in the early days of the incident. Mm-hmm. It was this thought in my head that on the last case that I did, that I just washed out his pelvis, it did cross my mind for a, a split second that the fat in the wound looked a little bit pale. It was dull. It didn't have this shiny yellow look that fat should have. Uh And in that moment, when I knew he developed necrotizing skin and soft tissue infections, I just was wallowing in the idea that there was an early necrotizing skin and soft tissue infections, and I missed it. And I was wondering, did I miss it because I'm inexperienced? If there was my 20-year experienced surgeon there, could he have picked, picked on it? Maybe I was just lazy and somehow I was just getting tired and I didn't want to do more stuff. But that idea was in my head. And in fact, you, you were tired. I mean, let's just... I was tired. Okay. I mean, you've been operating on this guy for like three days or something, right? Co- I mean, Correct, correct. Yeah. I, I don't know, and maybe we would never know if there was anything to it. It's just the thought in my head. I mean, it clearly was not necrotizing at that point in time. But the idea that, did I miss it? 
Uh-huh. Like, should I have done something there? And that idea kept turning in my head for months after that case. And, um, and that's, that's what the second victim phenomenon is. I did share it again with close peers of mine and, and, and they clearly did the wrong thing to do back then, which is just like, you're being an idiot. That's what they told me. You're being, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're I can just it. Uh, you're overthinking it. You were the hero of this patient. You tried your best. It was just a bad situation, but that's where the second victim phenomena, what it is. And I've had many, many incidences since then. I have plenty of stories. I come from the old world, so I can be a storyteller, but we'll save the, the audience. The stories are good. I think we live too much in the data often. The stories are what get us to resonate. Well, speaking of data, so let me tell you how I came back to this topic because I did not embark on talking about the second victim phenomenon after that incident. I just buried it in my cemetery of cases. Yeah, yeah, the cemetery (laughs) that I've seen over the years, and it only resurrected later on, quite a few years later, about six or seven years later. Uh, and it's resurrected because I, I'm, I'm a heavy data person. So I do a lot of research. I was heading the research um, group at Mass General. And one of my, if you want, passions in, in early in my career was intraoperative adverse events. I, I wanted to dissect that topic until there's nothing more to dissect. So I published, I don't know, 20, 30 papers about the topic. A lot of literature comes from me, but I was studying how do they happen? Why they happen? How do they affect how patients do after surgery? I created a classification for severity of intraoperative adverse event. Which, by I, the way, I, I highly recommend people read your material on that because it is groundbreaking and it opens the box, the black box that you refer to, to the light of knowing. You know, it, it's really remarkable, those contributions. So hats off to you on those things, sincerely. Thank you. It was it was a great journey, but it opened the Pandora's box of the second because right. what happened, what happened, which I, I don't think I talked about it at the talk at the college, but what happened is I had a medical student from Harvard Medical School who was fascinated by my research, so she came and she wanted to join that research team, and I told I challenged her. I said, "Well, come up with a topic that that you want to research, come up with a few topics and we can talk about it. And then she came to me, her name is Kelsey Han, and she's a resident in surgery now. I think she, she must be a PGY4 now. And she said, Kelsey came to me, she said, Dr. Kafarani, you've researched a lot on intraoperative adverse event, but all your research is focused on the patient or the system. How about the surgeons? We need to see how, what is it from the surgeon perspective? So we designed something called the BISA study, the Boston Intraoperative Surgeon's Attitude Study. It was a simple survey that, um, that aimed not only looking at how it affects surgeons emotionally, but also how surgeons feel about the transparency about reporting intraoperative adverse events and many other topics. So in that survey, which we administered to all the Harvard hospitals, there so was Mass General, Brigham, Children's Hospital, and Beth Israel Hospital. We asked all the surgeons. Uh, it was a liquor scale kind of survey, but it had some room for them to add material if they wanted to, because I knew surgeons always have an opinion and I wanted to give them an exit for their opinion. But then what surprised me, which is the Pandora's box of that study. I mean, we, it was a great study. It was published in JAX, but there were these pages and pages and pages of anonymous comments by surgeons about their personal stories and how they still feel bad years after their own case. It was almost, we gave them permission to spill their hearts and that's yes, yes yes so we so kelsey presented this at the new england um, um surgical society meeting and my chair keith lillimo which i don't know if you know in person he was in attendance and right in the middle of the talk i got a text message on my phone and it had the dreaded words we need to talk <laughs> <laughs> so i'm like they I'm do that on purpose. You never know what it's about. Because, yeah, yeah. Because I'm airing the dirty laundry of MGH in front of everybody else. Yeah, yeah. Actually, to his credit, and I always will give him credit, he, he said, you know, he told me a story of his own, which I will not share out of for his own privacy. But he told me a story from when he was in training himself of a patient he still remembers and was stuck in his mind. And then in the end, he looked at me, he said, you know, you're a great researcher. But this topic, it's time to bring it from the research 
to the actual world. What do we need to do about this? I challenge you to come up with a solution. We need to do something about it. And that's when I researched the topic. I landed on Albert Wood, uh, you know, article and a few other studies on the topic, none of them insurgents. But then I realized we have something. And that's where the story of the peer support program we created in MGH back in 2017, I believe, or 2000, yeah, I think 2017 is when we created. That's, that's how it came uh, about. Um, and so, I'd like to read one quote that's so profound from, because one of the great things about the BISA study that you talked about, Boston Interoperative Adverse Events Study, is that there are all these quotes from the surgeons, which really gives you a flavor. It, it changes the paper from one of tables and data to one like, oh my God, that's me, you know, me too, me too, me too. And this one is, we all hide our grief, suffer in silence. The pain can be close to debilitating. I mean, I'm assuming that you felt that way with your patient. I had a patient die on the table uh, and it wasn't even from a technical error. It was a technical thing, but it wasn't something that I directly did. That haunted me for years. And it was a young woman. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And even doing the the review of the second victim for a paper that I wrote, I mean, it, it almost was like PTSD reliving that, that whole experience. It was so profound. But I think, you know, I tended to, and I think a lot of us tend to minimize, you know, the impact of these things on ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do think, I think as surgeons, we get trained very early on for a good reason, for a good evolutionary reason. Yes, absolutely. You, you got, you got to pick yourself up. Like you said, the, the, you know, you've got a problem, you know, take the dust off your body and carry on because yeah, it is a tough job and it's important. It's an important resilience component of things. My take on it, Michael, is that actually us not completely sweeping things under the carpet is part of resilience. I agree. Because, and the two are not mutually exclusive. Right. I mean, I'm not exactly, I'm not exactly known at Masteron for being the touchy-feely guy. That's, I mean, anybody who's trained with me or knows me, no, I'm, I'm the tough guy that, you know, the, the bald, the Middle Eastern bearded trauma surgeon. Mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. they, you know, whenever there's trouble in the hospital, I'm there and I'm, you know, doing it and with, with, with a cool face if you want. But I think there's room for that when we're in the middle of it and there's room to debrief emotionally later. Yes. Yes. Now, I think the trick is not to, and we can go into the details of how to do peer support, but the trick is to not make it, to keep it meaningful. And that's a big word to say, you know, what do I mean by that? Not every patient I lose, I need peer support for. Right. Okay. I sometimes... I get, unfortunately, too many gunshot wound victim comes with a cardiac arrest. I do an ED thoracotomy with a residence in the ED and we declare the patient dead. It's a major death, right? It doesn't affect me as much. Now, talking to the family sometimes is very horrible and a piece of me dies every time I talk to the family, tell them their loved one died. But it has a different, I tried my best. Like there's no, I, the guilt component is not, there per se so right. i would not need peer support for that having said that you could have somebody a resident pgy1 pgy2 who's involved what looks to a minor incident to somebody experienced like you and me uh, you know they were they were uh, um, trying to do uh, a, a chest tube for example and they really messed something up and, and the chest tube was not in the right place, was in the sub-Q area instead of being in the lung, might or might not affect them. If they're PGY1, it might be affect them big deal. Yeah, it can affect so, them big time, potentially. Yeah. For me, I've placed hundreds of chest tubes before, and I do one and it goes the wrong way. I'm like, nah, you know, I messed it up. It will affect me, but maybe not in that major situation, major way. So so there's a lot of factors that go into what needs, and it's important anytime we create a peer support program to keep meaningfulness at the heart of it. You don't want it to become fluff. Everything triggers a peer support because then there's too much noise. Okay, yeah, that's great. I love that notion of meaningful peer support <clears throat> rather than just calling the troops in for every 
incident or problem that occurs because you're right, it depends on the individual, the circumstances uh, so profoundly. Now you've, you've led into peer support here and we're at Keith Lillimo and I, I suspect people listening to this are, what was this peer support thing? You know, how, how did that, how did that evolve and why is that so crucial and, and why is that a bridge between in the hallway? Yeah. Uh, don't be an idiot. <laughs> I had a support that <laughs> you right. got and, you know, going to a psychologist. That, that's right. So we, so back then when he challenged me to do something about it, I started by doing a lot of Richard review and I discovered some landmark work being done in terms of peer support. And it was the same, the same findings we, we had from the BISA study. You know, we asked them how they felt. There was 83% of surgeons had felt severe feelings of shame, embarrassment, anger, uh, and guilt. But also uh, the biggest proportion of surgeons had reported that their best support during those times were peers rather than family or anything else. Quite a few had required formal psychological and, psycholo and psychological um, uh, help, but the majority pointed out peers to be their go-to people. And just, I want to highlight 83%. Uh-huh. And that's a that's a large number. Co correct. Very large. I think, and I think the other 17 were just in denial or still very early. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I think probably true, you know. Yeah. 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 So so then after I did, you know, I found some um, programs that were not surgery specific, but some peer support programs with a little bit of guidance of what is needed to do peer support. Then I, I needed the first thing. So I call it like a five-step um establishment of the peer support program. The first thing to do was um, establish a, almost like a framework of where this lies in terms of peer support, exactly what you said. I will, we will never take away the immediate hallway support that happens between people in the same specialty, friends, mm -hmm. company. Mm -hmm. That will still always be there. And there's always in almost every hospital I know, there's an employee, employee assist program of some sort. Right. And at the, the tip of that pyramid that helps people who need the professional help. But there was this gap in the middle. Can we give some more systematic support for these people that is not the professional one, but it fills that gap in the middle? So that was the conceptual framework for me. The, the second part we needed to, to think about is where do we place it? I was mortified by the idea that if we create something like that, an unintended consequence could be discovery uh, by litigation. A lot of these cases that we do peer support for could become le legal um, cases and, and uh -huh. lawsuits. So we placed it under Q the QA umbrella to, to give it the peer support, the peer um, review protection. So it's technically under the umbrella of QA, but at the same time, we wanted the optics to be for the people, the providers, the bedside surgeons and, and providers to be, it's completely separate from QA. So it was a fine balance to play. It's organizationally under QA, but it had a very different optics and it's a separate entity, not the same mm -hmm. people in QA who do it. The third thing is we needed to identify who would be peer supporters? Who, sh who should be peer supporters? Everybody could be peer supporters. And that's where I actually went back to the surgeons and to the surgical residents in the program. I said, we send them an email. We say, tell me in, in two words, that's all you need. Tell me who are your go-to two or three names in the department who will support you when you have a difficult situation. Not the ones who will help you look at the scan and decide together, but who, who you think are the people you feel comfortable talking to. And names floated to the service naturally. It was amazing how the, the same names float to the service. These are people that are creating psychological safety for surgeons to talk. To, correct, correct. Yeah, These are without the judgment. Who, exactly, they're not, not judgmental. They have a good listening ear. And then we went to those specific people and there were residents and there were attendings of all different specialties, all different ages, all different genders. And then we said, congratulations, you've been <laughs> by your colleagues as the go-to person. So as a punishment, you will go through computer support training. And, uh, oh, and yeah. then what we did, we secured some time, which is not taxing on them. That's instead of the, you know, the usual educational time, m and and grand aunts. And then we went through a four to six hour session of training. And that's also needs 
quite a bit of preparation. And since then, I've been helping other organizations do their peer support. Uh, but the first one I did, I actually leaned on some um, known people in the area who came and helped. And there's some lectures um, that they go through, one or two lectures, but then the rest of it, the rest of the time is all simulation. And, and trust me when I say it as a trauma surgeon who cannot tolerate fluff, they were nothing close to being anything fluff. They were very heart, heartfelt by everybody because what we did is we got a surgeon to sit with another surgeon and then tell the surgeon to tell a bad situation that happened to them and ask the other one to support them. And then the, everybody is watching those two, these interactions. And then we would have a discussion, what worked, what didn't work. And then we would end up with actually bringing all the loose ends. Where are these are the lessons? And it was very, very helpful for everybody. And it was actually pretty interesting because people opened up even in those simulations. But those yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Those things set them up for this. You know, we give them the resources, how to be a good peer supporter, went through all the six stages, what they need to do at every stage. And then now we have the 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 um the group of peer supporters, if you want. And then we wanted to identify things that needed peer support. Now, before, Haven, just before we move on, what skills are required for somebody to be an effective peer supporter? What skills did you teach these go-to individuals? Yeah, yeah. They're all soft skills, which uh, fortunately, I, I actually think surgeons, that's why we need the training. I think we're, we're the worst at it because we are people who are wired to fix. Correct. And if you ask me the one skill that was most essential to teach the surgeons is unarming them from the desire to fix. Yes. And making them know that they need to listen, they need to validate, and it's okay to have silence and not to jump to tell them how they need to fix it. That is the hardest thing to a surgeon. We, the first thing I want to say when somebody is bringing me a problem is offer them solutions. And that's not what they need. They don't need your solutions. They just need your listening ear and your validation of what they're going through and telling them, yep, I've been there. I know how it feels. Sorry, it's tough. Yeah, It will pass. And I should note as an aside, <clears throat> I've learned that in my family also. The fix everything attitude doesn't go very far with my kids and my wife. Yep. I mean, they, they just want somebody to talk to sometimes and not throw out all the various machinations that a surgeon can throw at them. That's right. That's exactly right. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, that's one of the skills is quite a few. There's, you know, there's a lot of resource tools that we give them with the do's and do nots and, you know, some sentences that could be guidance of how to talk, how to bring some topics, how also what to elevate a higher level which unfortunately we had to use over the last few years. Mm -hmm. I would get a call from the peer supporter say, listen, I'm very worried about such and such. I think we should involve a higher level of help. And we did. And it was the good call. It was every time the right call is they say, you know, it was, I think they're in their, in their own head about it. And I don't think it's going very well. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, so that's one thing. Then how do I identify? And I had created a whole list of M&Ms and safety reports. And, and uh, to be honest, in the end, it's a word of mouth that works the best. Right now, when, when the, the program became established in our department, I get two, three emails and two, three text, text messages about a single event. I get it. The anesthesia, our anesthesiologist will text me about it. The nurses will text me about it. This other, the head of the department... Everybody's like, did you hear what happened in OR33? Can you make sure you reach out to them? I'm worried about them. So what, once it's established, it becomes part of the culture. But initially, we had a set of how are we kind of systematically identify anything that needs attention. And then, and then we have the actual intervention. And it starts as simple as when I, I think I identify something, I triage it, whether this is sometimes I, I decide to not intervene because I want to keep the meaningfulness. It doesn't so now at this point, is everything flowing through you? So, so, so I get, yes, I get the email okay. uh, or the text message about it. And then what I would do, I would dig a little bit more to know some details about the event and whether it, whether I should reach out and who I should reach out to, because there's usually 
Uh, sometimes it's an attending, sometimes it's two attendings because the situation got really out of hand, sometimes it's three, sometimes there's a follow, there's a resident, more than one resident. So I, I get those things in mind. And then I would send emails and I would, in those emails, this is a key point, if anybody wants to do a peer support program, and that's very different than a lot of other peer support programs that are not surgery specific. I made it an opt-out program by decision because I knew if I just, create a phone and I expect surgeons to call me to tell me, hey, I'm not feeling good. Can we talk? It's Never just happened. Never so happened. So I normalize that everybody's getting it. You can opt out. You can really, but it's just normalized that you're not weak. You're not exceptional. This is the norm. And only if you really think you don't want it, then we can stop it. And then I would assign a, one of the peers, the trained peer supporters to, to go to that person. I will give them a phone call, explain to them the situation. Can you reach out to them? And I would then I reach out to the surgeon and I would say, somebody's gonna reach out to you and talk to you. And typically I always offer to pay for the coffee. They go for a walk in the hallway, get a coffee together and you know talk a little bit. And sometimes there's a second and a third time and a fourth time if needed. So I'm quite talking. informal and casual, but serious. Co correct. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's informal, but it's systematic with a little bit of, uh, I wouldn't say it's a structured way of how to do it, but definitely a guided way of how to do right. it. Right. Some scaffolding, right? And, and who, who I choose to support who, there's a lot of factors going to it, perhaps not worth going into the details now, but definitely keep, keep in mind the, name, the specialty of the surgeons, the difference in experience, if there's any hierarchical issues involved. You just keep keep an eye on that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that. So that's how the peer support. And again, like the intervention itself, there's a lot of training and a lot of resources that we give to both of them. So that's in a nutshell how the peer support program works. And it's been live and well uh, since. For how long now? How long? I, you know, I'm, I'm blanking whether 2017, I think it was 2017 that we started it. So five years. Mm -hmm. And are you still the point person or has that been turned over to somebody else at this point so i've been the point person till uh since september but since uh september i uh so i'm still at mgh but i decreased my appointment to a part-time because i am uh, i've been appointed as the uh, the chief patient safety officer of the joint commission at the national level and mm -hmm. congratulations I, by the way that's a hell of an honor well, thank you thank you no, it's, yeah. it's exciting times for that but i uh one of the uh peer supporters uh, who, uh, who I trained, who was my resident at some point, I, uh, I, you know, he was very active. He was very passionate about it. He himself had cases that he needed peer support for. So he actually was the right person to it. And I, he approached me, he's like, hey, I'm interested in this. So I passed it along with him and I think it's thriving with him and he's adding to it his own personal touch, which is great. Great, great, great. All right. So the impact, what is the impact of a peer support program like this? And I, I just want to note, <clears throat> yours is so unique um, in that it's very surgeon specific and it's tailored for this. And many other peer support programs are so broad and so encompassing that they lack kind of what I would, I mean, at least in literature, sort of a personal feel. Whereas this, what's so great about yours is this sort of sense, and I get it from the paper too, that you're almost within a family within your division or your department. It creates a, a certain sense of belonging by having a peer support program. And I think that's an important feature of the psychology of this, but it, it, you can chat about that at any point in your discussion about the results of this program and how it impacted the culture and that, which I think is so crucial. You are so spot on because when people ask me, like what are the two characteristics of the peer support program we created that are most important? You know, if you take away a lot of the decorations and the icing on the cake, what are the two most important? The first one I already talked about is it's the fact that it's an opt-out. I think that's really important. The second one is what you said, the surgery specific component of it. And why it is important in my mind? I do not know how to support a psychiatrist who lost their patient to suicide one day after they were in their clinic, meaning uh -huh. they misjudge how suicidal they are. I don't know how it feels. Right. I don't know how to support them. The same way a pathologist doesn't know how to support a surgeon who was had music in the background, was having an elective case, everybody is relaxed in the room, and the last snip of a scissors that they took 
was just you know two millimeters too much yeah. and suddenly there's blood flowing everywhere massive transfusion happening music is down everybody's stressed you know it, that feeling only a surgeon knows how what it is right so that's why i think it has to be surgeon specific now could a proceduralist of another sort support a surgeon i think so it's it's a very fine line of where we overlap or lat can a breast surgeon support a cardiac surgeon i don't know about that that's part of the sure yeah. exactly exactly so so there's a lot of nuances it's hard to draw a hard line in the sand of where what is the overlap of who can support who but the the, the concept is is clear exactly as you stated it michael you got to have people who can support, who can say, I know how it feels. I've been in your shoes. That's the meaningfulness component of it. Now, what, what has been the impact of the program? Uh, it's hard to measure, but I tried to. So we did like a one year after the program, uh, we had 47 interventions. And those 47 interventions, the... Um, uh, blanking how many of them was it I, I believe 81% of surgeons opted in 81 or 83% and only a small proportion of surgeons decided not to go through it so that's one but then we asked all the, the surgeons the residents the peer supporters everybody who, who the program touched one way or the other we had a survey for them about asking their opinion about it what things need to be better what things work what things don't and the vast majority, like we're talking 80, 90%, were extremely positive about it. And the one that I carry as a badge of honor is when you ask the peers who needed the support, whether they would be interested in becoming peer supporters, it was almost every one of them said. Every one of them, yeah. Every one of them. That's like, for me, that's, that's the testimony that something's working. But there's also intangible way how it affected um, affected us. I think our culture of safety at Mass General tremendously improved. And and, and you know, Mass General, is, we, our our inside joke is we're two hundred years of tradition unimpeded by medical progress. That's all. <laughs> from I, the Midwest, I, I find say, that wonderfully amusing. <laughs> Well, what, what, what I mean to say, we're, we're a place that's very anchored in tradition and history. I know, yeah, that's right. And our M&M is brutal for a good yeah. reason. You know, we really, when we have our M&M, we want to dissect the root cause, understand why it happened, because we don't want it to happen again. And since the program, our M&M is still as brutal. <laughs> yeah. But the difference is, you know, we, we are able to be brutally honest with ourselves about what things went wrong dissecting the cases but in m&m i will get these looks over the shoulders or these kind of symbols you know make sure we're being harsh in m&m but make sure you reach out to that person they seem uh -huh, to be uh -huh. that's the case and actually when we ask the people in the survey did you think you know the you know your safety culture is positively impacted negatively impacted almost everybody said that the culture of safety has improved because of it. Meaning not only we were helping the surgeons, the secondary benefit in the patients was there, at least in the opinions of the surgeons affected. Do you think it, so I, just that moment in M&M, because I, I loved it. When you say brutal M&M, I don't know what you mean. I remember M&Ms back when I was a medical student at University of Minnesota, when Richard Varco would be standing up, pointing a finger, screaming at the chief resident. <clears throat> I don't think you mean brutal that way. I think <laughs> you mean brutal in honesty and reflection and candor, you know. That's correct. And, but that moment in, in the complications conference when somebody looks over at you, that, that wouldn't have happened, I think, without the peer support program. Would you agree? Co correct. I mean, that's the difference that we see. Yeah. Is we are, we're able to say, to be you know honest about our discussion of cases and hit at the right issues you know at the same time we're able to support that surgeon right the two, the two go hand in hand and actually i even take it a step further michael i actually think within professionalism and without this becoming personal blames or character assassinations the 
process of amanam dissecting a difficult case for assertion is therapeutic. It's part of their evolution of healing. I used to love MM because of that. It yeah. is crucial. And there's nothing that will delay the healing of a surgeon that knows they could have done something better than if nobody calls it on them. No right. like people go like, eh, yeah, next. Yeah. That's not good. No. So I actually think the two not only are not mutually exclusive, but they're complementary. Yeah. And it, that that's really the crucial thing here. And, and this is why one of the podcasts was, was, was with, uh, and the resilient surgeon was with Amy Edmondson, who's a master of psychological safety at Harvard. And we tend to conflate psychological safety with softness. But what you're talking about here is a sense of psychological safety with radical candor in a milieu of caring, you know, Correct. and it, it's a really a big, big difference. And so then that speaks to, you talked about it improved a culture of safety did it one of the things that i think is so lacking often in departments and it's i think it's really a cultural legacy of the halstead area era and how we are trained as surgeons and that is we're kind of parked in these academic institutions as a faculty okay go to it there and do your academic career and of course you're supported in various ways and uh, and things like that but there can often be a lack of sort of real sense of belonging i mean it you're, you're you tend to be islands in a mansion, in a way, you know, in, in your room, and you run your room. And what I'm curious about is, did, did this process of peer support crack open the lid of perhaps a greater sense of belonging within the, the department? Or am I taking that, a, a, my hopes, a, a bit too far? That's, that's the first time I get this question, Michael. It's a really good one. I mean, I'd like to flatter myself and say the answer is yes. It's hard to measure. I actually think it did. Um, I think it absolutely did. I mean, I can't imagine it wouldn't. I mean, typically, just talking of the islands as you 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 characterize them. I mean, let's say I have a theoretically a cardiac surgeon who had a bad situation in the OR. I I'm not sending to them a cardiac surgeon most commonly because I don't want this to be within the division. Mm -hmm. I'm not sending them the endocrine surgeon. I'm sending them the transplant surgeon mm -hmm. who does the liver transplants. Right. Right. They also have a high level kind of right. acuity situations. And typically those two never talk. And so I think, I think you're right. We broke down some specialty silos within the department. Mm -hmm. Actually, mm -hmm. I, I even take it further and say, you know, we init I initially established the program only as a, the classic journal, not general surgery, the surgical department. Orthopedics, neurosurgery, ENT are all different departments. They're not part of the department of surgery. They're their own departments. Right. But because the leaderships in those departments talk, I actually quite a few times got phone calls from other chairs asking me if I could extend that peer support to their surgeons in different departments. Uh -huh. So we even broke the silos across departments, not only within the department. And we did, like we said, as a courtesy, said like, yeah, well, we're not, but this is sounds major, happy, and we would send somebody to talk to them. So it we, we broke the silos. And after that, it even broke the silos, meaning when the word got out about the program, perioperative nurses need, wanted to do their own peer support. So we helped them establish one. The OBGYN department wanted their own. We helped them establish one. And then it just started catching like fire in, the, in different parts of the hospital. So we, we definitely broke some silos within and outside the department. It's fantastic. And I, I, I can't imagine that this really doesn't create a much better sense of team or cohesion or belonging within an institution or a division, excuse me, a division or a department. Let me ask you a related but sort of peripheral question. One of the talks I was at at the ACS was, it was a mental health session. <clears throat> and there were very famous, very well-known liver transplant surgeon, another New York institution. And he came to someone, uh, I think the chair, if I remember correctly, and told him that he was really struggling with depression. And the chair said, well, you need to leave work and you need to get in touch with a psychologist. And he went home. And three days later, they found him dead. He'd hung himself, you know, in his home. 
And and so what are your thoughts about extending this to, you know, there's so much talk about burnout and mental health issues and suicide in the world of uh, physicians and surgeons. Is there a role for this type of peer support and recognition of struggles of, of our colleagues in a way that is not just okay, you go deal with this and then come back or, and then as a tribe, can we take care of each other in a more uh, cohesive and, and uh, hum humanistic way like that? Because that's after all, as humans, what we are wired to do. Yeah. You know? uh, I don't know, Michael, tough, tough one. I, I don't want to say yes and I don't want to say no because I do think there's room for us to support each other more as a tribe, um, I, 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 and I do think it happens, the hallways, the within the divisions, people know. I mean, you know, you know your colleague who was mm -hmm. one of the best. Now, you know, there's a burst of, you know. Anger. Anger is happening here and there. And, or withdrawal, and you know. He's yeah. coming late uh, or she's coming late, you know. Exactly. You know, something is off because you know them for so many years. And typically, we're, you know, you would be the first one to realize that. The question in my mind, which is why I'm hesitating giving you a defin definite surgical answer, is are we qualified to do that? Mm -hmm. I know I'm not. Like, despite all the experience I kind of accumulated with the peer support program, I recognize my limitation as a non-trained uh, psychologists, psychiatrists. I can support a surgeon who has a bad outcome because I can bond with her or with him saying, I, I, it sucks. God, I know how it feels. What can I tell my colleague who is dealing with depression? Well, if I've had depression before, I, you know, I could be helpful. What am I doing to the one dealing with substance abuse? I, I actually think that's where I maybe we need to draw the line and be more of the, the pointing out the help or pointing the help to them rather than directly involved in, in that. Um, I worry about two things. I worry about us being not qualified and doing the wrong things for these people. That's one, but I also worry how the emotional burden of us helping somebody through these on us too. Mm -hmm. So I, I need to think more about it, but I, my gut reflex says we shouldn't go there. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, I, you know, of course the sort of implicit assumption in what you said is that it is, would be our responsibility to in some way help them. And we may not be qualified but we are qualified to know if something's amiss yeah. and to point it out and let somebody know we care and we're here to help them get through it. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think not only we're qualified to point this out, I think we're most qualified and almost I would dare to say it's perhaps a little bit of responsibility that we need to rescue a colleague who is not doing well. And this is my point because instead of coming to a, a disastrous end, you know, I mean, these are people that are so highly trained and contribute so much. I, I feel I feel very strongly that it behooves us as surgeons to take care of our own. You know, these are members of our tribe, our team, and we know when something's off typically. And, and I, I think it's very important that we figure out a way to do that in a more mean, as you said, meaningful way. You know? yeah. yeah. Well, this has been great. Uh, last question, Haytham, and, and that is, do you think that there are and I don't think this was addressed in your papers, but are there any skills that the surgeon as an individual, you know, best practices, so to speak, for contending with, you know, a major adverse event that is emotionally impacting them? We put a lot of the onus on peer support and, and, and that. What about the individual? Is there anything that they can do from your perspective? It's <sighs> a good question again. A lot of good questions. Uh, um... I think my message to surgeons who did have, will have, are having major or catastrophic patient outcomes is you're not alone. Um, it's happened to almost every single surgeon I know. 
even though for years we kept it, you know, almost like our own secret and we felt we're the only people who are somehow weak and unable to tolerate the situation because, you know, of culture, of the aura of invincibility that we created for ourselves. But what they need to know when they have this incident is how they feel is okay, is normal. Right. And, and to be honest, if you're not feeling bad about a patient that died or had a major complication in your hands, I worry about you continuing to practice. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good note to leave it on there. I, I guess it's it's a little sad, but true. And I think, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's crucial that we contend with the emotions of these and recognize them as you say, normal and, and part of what we all experience as surgeons. That in and of itself is so healing, isn't it? Yep. Just that mere fact. Well, Haytham, I mean, I, I cannot state emphatically enough how grateful I am that you have done all this work, that you, you went down this path because you've really created something that is desperately needed, not only for second victim uh, sufferers like any, any surgeon who goes through this, but for the slow but cultural, important cultural changes that are happening in the world of surgery while maintaining our commitment to the best parts of being a surgeon. And I, I really, I, I thank you for that. It's an incredible uh, contribution that you've made here. So, and your colleagues. So thank you very much. And, and thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. No, thank, thank you for the opportunity to be with you the chance to talk about this topic. I'm obviously very passionate about it. So all, all the thanks really go to you. Thank you. This has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.